The first time I met Kamala Lopez, it was at a pro-ERA rally at the U.S. Capitol in 2012. She was with a film crew making a documentary about the ERA called Equal Means Equal. And I was dressed something like a 1960s housewife holding a banner that said ERA missionaries are everywhere. But before we met, just over a decade ago, Kamala felt like she was on top of the world. Well, in 2009, I had just completed my first feature film, which is called A Single Woman. It was a movie about first U.S. Congresswoman Jeanette Rankin, who was elected to Congress before women had the vote. So I made this very small film about her, and it happened to be the year that the Smithsonian Institution was doing an exhibit called Women of Our Time, and Rankin was one of the women that they were focusing on, and they brought the film to the Smithsonian Institute, and they brought me out with my husband as the director, and it was a really big deal, and I was so excited, and I felt truly like I had arrived. When Kamala and her husband got to the event, she was confronted with someone she wasn't expecting. And so we get to the Smithsonian, and it has the National Portrait Gallery, is their, their auditorium, which was brand new and gorgeous, and the huge lobbies, and it was just very sort of, ah. And across the way, I saw a woman dressed all in white with a banner across her and a bonnet on, some kind of a, an outfit, and I thought, oh my goodness, what is going on over there? Who is that? What is that? As I walked closer to her, I saw that she was dressed as a suffragist. And I said, hi, my dear, how are you? And who are you? And she looked me straight in the eye and she said, my name is Alice Paul and I'm back to haunt you because you've done nothing to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. And I just stood there. I just, just was frozen in time and I felt like, like dizzy. It was very shocking to be told that everything you thought was true was a lie. And so what did she tell you about the Equal Rights Amendment? First of all, I thought she was absolutely wrong, misinformed, that this had already happened because I, like 96% of the American population, believed that when the Congress ratified the ERA in 1972 and the president signed it, that it was complete. Even a, as a well-educated woman with a college degree, to be blindsided by this information, it just was so deeply disrespectful and made me feel like such a fool. Like the whole society is laughing at us because the ramifications of not being equal are so profound. And so you found out about the Equal Rights Amendment from the ghost of Alice Paul. You must remember that when the Constitution was written, that women were regarded as property. The struggle for an Equal Rights Amendment traces back to 1923 when feminist Alice Paul wrote the words that became ERA. Equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of sex. So as we march today, remember, forward together, backward never. 
If you could change one thing about the Constitution, what would it be? I would add an equal rights amendment to the Constitution. Yesterday, all these years later, Virginia's legislature voted to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment, making it the 38th state to do so. That means three-quarters of all states have ratified, as the Constitution requires. Hi, I'm Kate Kelly, human rights attorney, feminist, and advocate for the Equal Rights Amendment. And this is Ordinary Equality. Today we're talking about the woman who actually wrote the Equal Rights Amendment, Alice Paul. She went to the same law school I did. Washington College of Law was founded by two suffragists as the only law school for women. She got a law degree in order to learn how to write and pass an amendment to the U.S. Constitution. We sometimes have a tendency to try and turn people who greatly impact history into sort of a mythic version of themselves. But while I appreciate and celebrate her accomplishments, I know that Alice Paul was a complicated, flawed person, like we all are. She had a huge impact on the movement that led to the ratification of the 19th Amendment, first giving women the constitutional right to vote. And after the 19th Amendment passed, she continued to push to expand legal rights of women. Still, time after time, she continued to make some of the same racist, narrow-minded mistakes. Before we get to Alice Paul, let's rewind. As we talked about last episode, the U.S. was not a womanless void at its founding. Many women were active in civic life at the start of our nation, and that involvement continued even after the founders failed to remember the ladies. In 1837, the Grimke sisters from South Carolina lectured to large crowds about women's rights and abolition. Sarah Grimke famously said, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg famously quoted her in her first oral argument before the Supreme Court. I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. In 1848, the first women's rights convention took place in Seneca Falls, New York. The women who attended were influenced by the Iroquois women of neighboring Seneca Village, who had significantly more and different rights than non-Native women. Here's Jacqueline Keeler, the Native journalist and author we heard from last episode on that point. It's very difficult to challenge systems when you don't have proof that it would work. And, and what Native cultures provided to white women, to European women here in the Americas, was an example of it actually working. And, you know, in their speeches at Seneca Falls, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and other women rights activists, they explicitly stated that this is what inspired them, seeing this, seeing a place where in the village, the Seneca village, you know, women could walk around without fear of being raped. And, um, you know, the rape culture, which many people think is normal, was not normal in Native cultures, and that, that a Native woman would never have her children taken from her. I have been to Seneca Falls, where that first convention took place, and to me it was sacred ground. The outcome of the Seneca Falls Convention was the Declaration of Sentiments, based on the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men and women are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In 1868, the Civil War amendments to the Constitution were ratified. 
the 13th ended slavery, the 14th added equal protection of the law, and the 15th gave men the right to vote, regardless of race. All three amendments were initially supposed to be for men and women. There was a split among women's rights activists, many of whom were also leading abolitionists, like Susan B. Anthony and Frederick Douglass. The final outcome was that the amendments were ratified for only men, introducing the word male into the Constitution for the first time. This left women without freedom, equal protection of the law, or the vote. Though many were staunch abolitionists, this was devastating to the women's rights advocates at the time. They felt betrayed even by men like Douglas, who attended Seneca Falls Convention and were his close ally. Following this defeat, these women said and did some wildly racist things. The women's movement was not at that point or ever a solely white women's movement. But the tension over the relationship between the movements for racial and gender equity took root and continued to grow. Despite setbacks, the march towards women getting the right to vote pushed on. In 1871, Mary Ann Shad Carey, the first African-American female lawyer and the first Black woman in North America to edit and publish a newspaper, tried unsuccessfully to register to vote. In 1872, Susan B. Anthony was arrested for casting a ballot in the presidential election. But I bet you didn't know that a Black woman did it first. Here's Julie Sook, the Dean for the Master's Programs and Professor in Sociology, Political Science, and Liberal Studies at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. The Equal Rights Amendment has its origins, really, in Susan B. Anthony's participation in debates about the 14th Amendment, because there's this question of whether or not the 14th Amendment entitles women to vote. Uh, and of course, we get case law after the 14th Amendment goes into effect in Minor versus Happersett in 1875, which establishes that the right to vote is not a privilege or immunity of citizenship, and therefore uh, the um, 14th Amendment did not extend the vote to women. So we get clarity after the fact of the 14th Amendment. But during the time that the 14th Amendment uh, was being debated, Susan B. Anthony at least made the argument that it should cover equal rights of women. By 1875, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in two different cases that the 14th Amendment did not protect a woman's right to vote. After that setback, the women's suffrage movement continued to grow. Movements were growing in tandem in the U.S. and across the Atlantic in the U.K., though the British women's tactics were more radical. That brings us to the lady of the hour, Alice Paul. So the National Woman's Party was the historic organization founded by Alice Paul in 1913 with the sole single issue focus of making sure that the 19th Amendment was ratified and that women in the United States would have the right to vote. That's Anna Lehman. She's the executive director of the Women's Suffrage Centennial Commission. Prior to leading that federal agency, she worked at the National Woman's Party, the same one Alice Paul herself founded as Director of Public Partnerships and Programs. So Alice Paul, before she went to found the National Woman's Party, she was a member of NASA, and she just wasn't satisfied with their tactics. NASA stands for National American Woman Suffrage Association. Alice Paul became dissatisfied after seeing what suffragists in the UK were doing. They inspired her to pursue bolder action. 
We often, when we talk about these women, whether it's Elizabeth Cady Stanton or Alice Paul or Ida B. Wells or Mary Church Terrell, we often talk about the work that they did and the movement that they created in in very mild terms, when in reality, these were bold, brave, radical women. And if you look back at the speeches that they gave, if you look back at the at what they stood for and then the, the mission that they worked towards, they were bold and they were radical by 1920 standards, and they're bold and radical by today's standards, really. And so, you know, a lot of that for Alice Paul was learned in her time in the UK. So she went to the United Kingdom to study and she ended up getting involved in the suffrage movement. And that's where she met Lucy Burns, who became her partner in all of this work. And the two of them together really built the National Woman's Party. And in her time in the UK, she learned from the, the suffrage movement in the, in the United Kingdom these incredibly bold tactics for trying to push the bar forward for women's equality. So over here in the U.S., people were writing letters and contacting their representatives, and it was much more following the standard procedures of what it took at the time to try to make change. In the United Kingdom, they were breaking windows, they were blowing up mailboxes. It was a whole different story over there. And so Alice Paul took what she learned there, she brought it back here to the United States, and she very much combined the two movements. Alice Paul brought back with her the slogan of the English suffrage movement, Deeds, Not Words. The concept was put into action in 1913 when Alice Paul organized a suffrage parade. She wanted to do something that would grab people's attention Woodrow Wilson had just been elected president, and D.C. was preparing for his inauguration parade. Alice Paul decided to plan the march for the day before, intentionally stealing his thunder. She called on all the various groups and organizations of the movement to join hands. In the early 2000s, Hollywood made a movie about Alice Paul called Iron Jawed Angels. Hilary Swank played Alice. Here she is explaining to Carrie Chapman Catt her idea for the parade. Have you any other thoughts, Miss Paul? A parade in March, the day Wilson's arriving for his inauguration. We're guaranteed a crowd and hopefully some badly needed publicity from the newspapers. Nothing like this had ever been done before. You have to remember that at the time, it's 1913, and women were not supposed to be on the streets. They weren't supposed to be raising their voices. They weren't supposed to be demanding anything. That's not what women were expected to do at the time. You absolutely still had this concept of the public sphere and the private sphere, where the public sphere was for men. And when these women took to the streets and marched and demanded the right to vote, Alice Paul was right. Everybody did pay attention. Nobody had ever seen anything like this before. And so, you know, everybody forgot about Woodrow Wilson, just like Alice Paul hoped they would. And instead, all of the stories on the front page of the paper were about Alice Paul and this incredible parade that she had staged and these, this incredible showing of women out on the street demanding that they be heard, demanding equality, and demanding the right to vote. The march made the point that Alice Paul hoped it would. 
But in trying to ensure that the march didn't ruffle the wrong feathers, Alice made a problematic choice. The idea was to bring all of those fighting for women's rights behind one unified banner for justice. The reality looked a little different. So Alice Paul was faced with this decision. She needed people to show up, right? The goal of this parade was to make the front page of the newspaper. And she knew that the only way to do that was to fill the streets with women. And so she faced a choice and she was told that the Southern delegations of women, the women who were coming to represent the Southern states, would not march if they had to march with black women. Does she integrate the parade and have black and white women march together? Or does she give in to the demands of the Southern organizations, the Southern white organizations, and demand that the black women march in the back of the parade? So Alice Paul decided to segregate the parade. She believed that women's suffrage couldn't happen without bringing the Southern states on board and catered to their racist demands. But not everyone agreed to follow Alice Paul's orders. Ms. Paul, Ida Wells Barnett from the Chicago delegation. We'll be right back after this message. It's 2020. There are a lot of people running for president in the U.S. Tired of hearing about the campaign gaffes, personal bios, and canned talking points? To understand what all these candidates actually want to do if they're elected, listen to The Impact, a podcast from Vox all about how powerful people affect the rest of us. This season, host Jillian Weinberger is looking at some of the big ideas from the 2020 candidates. Subscribe to The Impact on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app to get new episodes now. Famously, Ida B. Wells refused to be pushed back and marched at the front of the Illinois delegation, right between two white women. I spoke with Virginia State Senator Jennifer McClellan about what happened, who you heard from back in episode two. Senator McClellan had a special connection to Ida B. Wells, their sorority sisters. I'm a member of Delta Sigma Theta, and the founding members of Delta were, it was 22 women at Howard University, and they and um, a couple of their sponsors wanted to march, you know, Ida B. Wells from Illinois, um, and there were a number of of others, but those are the, the most prominent, and they were told to march in the back. Um, there was a real fear in the South um, that if you put forward women of color, it would feed into the arguments against giving women the right to vote. Because in the South, it, there was blatant racism to say, if you give women the right to vote, that means you are going to be voting with your seamstress or with your maid. Um, women use those arguments white women use, use those arguments against women being able to vote. And so there was a real fear if black women are front and center, we feed into that narrative. And so they, uh, they were asked to march in the back. Well, I'd be well said, no, I'm marching with my delegation in the front. And she did. Black women were literally forced out of view at the parade and were intentionally erased in the historical record of the time. 
Susan B. Anthony and others wrote a book with several volumes called History of Woman Suffrage. That became the definitive record of the time. But they left out women they disagreed with and centered white women in the movement. This intentional erasure repeats itself throughout the history of the United States. You know, what's really sad here in Virginia, it is very hard to find a record of black suffragettes. And I just did a search trying to figure out like who are the black suffragettes and it was hard to find them in Virginia. But Rosa Dixon Bowser was one and she was better known as being an education advocate but she was a feminist and she also worked for women to have the right to vote. So even in the civil rights movement, black women were pushed to the back. In another March on Washington, there were no women speakers on the program. And they did eventually have some that participated, but they weren't speakers. But now we're sort of saying, you know what? We're not gonna let other people do this alone. We're gonna put the bills in and we're gonna fight for them. And it's a natural extension of the 19th Amendment and what should have been part of the 14th Amendment. So we're part of this fight. Often the way we talk about history is problematic because we reduce people to their involvement in a single issue and we strip people of their complexities. Here's Anna Lehman again. You know, if you're lucky enough to learn about Ida B. Wells in school, you're gonna learn about the anti-lynching work that she did. You're gonna learn about the incredible pioneering journalism, but you're not gonna learn about Ida B. Wells as a suffragist. And that again comes back to how we teach history and how we boil people down to just one thing. So if we're teaching about Ida B. Wells as someone who worked um, against lynching, well, my goodness, we can't possibly find time in the curriculum to also talk about the work that she did for suffrage. You know, the same goes for Harriet Tubman and the same goes for Sojourner Truth. If you're lucky enough to learn about those two women in school, you're going to learn a lot about what they did, their anti-abolition and anti-slavery work. You're not ever going to hear about the work that they did for women's suffrage, but both of those women were out there working towards this right to vote for women. They were incredible, powerful people. So what we end up doing is we take an entire movement, right, and we boil it down to one person. So we take the civil rights movement and we boil it down to Martin Luther King. We take the suffrage movement and we boil it down to Alice Paul or Susan B. Anthony. When in fact, you had five million suffragists who marched and who fought and who demanded justice and equality. And so when we take a whole movement of people and we boil it down to one person, and then we take that one person and we boil them down to be just this we put them on a pedestal and they become this hero, right? We do that person a disservice and we do American history a disservice. People are much more complicated than that. And I think the suffrage movement is the perfect example of that, where you had these women who were bold and brave and radical and achieved something that was so crucial for women in America. And without what these suffragists did, I would never be where I am today. I would never be the head of a federal agency. I would never be sitting here having this conversation with you. At the same time, while what they achieved was extraordinary and monumental in American history for American women and for American democracy, they made a lot of mistakes along the way. 
important ones, big ones that led to decades of consequences, a century of consequences. And so the 1913 parade, by all measures, right, achieved what Alice Paul was hoping it would achieve, but it came at a cost and it came at a price. And unfortunately, you know, that decision that she made in the 1913 parade, she continued to make throughout her activism over and over and over. Alice Paul was a genius at getting people to pay attention. Members of the National Woman's Party were the first people to ever picket or protest in front of the White House. They started in 1917 and were there diligently six days a week. Snow, rain, sleet didn't matter. They would stand in front of the White House with their banners saying, Mr. President, what will you do for women's suffrage? They would stand there and they would demand to be heard. They basically brought a cauldron. They called them watchfires. And they would burn copies of President Woodrow Wilson's speeches in front of the White House, where he would stand up and he would give these speeches about the importance of democracy and the importance of spreading democracy around the world. And it was all a part of, you know, the sort of World War I rhetoric. And they would burn copies of these speeches and they would say, you know, you claim to care about democracy, but 51% of the population here in your country doesn't have the right to vote. And how can you stand up and say that we need to spread democracy around the world when we don't have true democracy here at home? The women's suffrage movement was violent, not glamorous, but it was effective. Women like Alice Paul were arrested, jailed, brutally beaten, assaulted, and force-fed. Eventually, the 19th Amendment did pass. And exactly 100 years ago, this August, Tennessee ratified the amendment, becoming the last state necessary to do so. Having achieved a major goal, Alice Paul and the National Woman's Party had a big decision to make. Suffragist Mary Church Terrell was one of the first African-American women to earn a college degree and a charter member of the NAACP. She championed an inclusive way forward. She supported the ERA, but demanded that work on universal suffrage was not yet done. It's 1920. The 19th Amendment is ratified. The National Woman's Party have to decide what their mission is going to be now. What is this organization going to be? And they decide to pivot towards this larger mission of working towards women's equality. And so in 1921, Alice Paul drafts the ERA. It's first introduced in 1923. And she starts working towards this idea of equality under the law for all women. At the time, Mary Church Terrell came to her and said, look, this ERA thing is great, but the 19th Amendment is not being implemented fairly and effectively for all women across the United States. Black women are still being marginalized. Black women are still being denied the right to vote. In the Jim Crow South, there are all sorts of barriers to black women's right to vote and black men's right to vote that the 19th Amendment did not fix. And so Mary Church Terrell came to Alice Paul and said, this, is, this needs to be the new mission. We need your support. We need your help. We need to work towards making sure that the 19th Amendment is effective in the way that we all hoped it would be effective. And Alice Paul's response to that was, 
I hear you, Mary, but my goal is to work towards equality for women. And I'm not really interested in getting into race. I'm, that's just not the direction that we're going to head. I'm thinking about women as an umbrella. And I'm not going to pivot the mission of this organization to work towards the specific voting rights or the specific barriers that black women are facing now. That's not where this is going to head. And, you know, that reaction is disappointing, right? And so you can see there are these moments over time where Alice Paul makes sort of the same choice over and over again, the wrong choice, really, over and over again. And it's, but it's not that simple, right? Because the ERA is so important for women and was so important for women. And this, this race towards equality. And so you can see she's faced with this choice and it's hard to look back and know, right, what, what she should have done. But by all measures, she absolutely did not value the stories and the lived experiences of black women and she repeated that same mistake. Alice Paul continued to advocate for the ERA throughout her life until her death in 1977. She was a steward of the women's movement from the time before suffrage to a time when we would be fully and completely integrated into the U.S. Constitution. But her tunnel vision on the ERA blinded her to other vitally important issues. White women often support and uphold white supremacy because it directly benefits us. But the Equal Rights Amendment was not and is not a white woman's movement. We'll get into this more in future episodes, but it's important to note that the resurrection of the Equal Rights Amendment has been led by women of color across the country. That includes Senator Jennifer McClellan from Virginia. Here she is again. I have been very impressed and remind people that women of color are leading the way in the legislature. You know, you've got Jennifer Carroll Foy here in Virginia pushing it. Um, you have Gilda Cobb Hunter, the longest serving African-American senator in South Carolina. You have Karen Carter-Peterson in Louisiana. And it's, and women, black women have always been in the fight for women's equality. We're just not the ones that get the attention. And that was true of the suffragette movement, but we were there. And, you know, I kind of feel the spirit of Ida B. Wells where it's like, you know, not only are we going to be in this fight, we're not going to be relegated to the back. We're going to be right up front. And hopefully the media will pay attention, but we're used to doing the work and not getting recognition. We will recognize ourselves and we will make sure we're lifting each other up. It's more important that the job gets done. But I think if we're going to address pay inequity, pay inequity impacts women of color more, but we can make a big difference on it if we have the ERA and we have a legal basis to address pay equity. The intersectionality of being a woman of color or even a transgender woman or a lesbian I, or queer in any way, I, the intersectionality of it is you are doubly oppressed. And once you tackle one, that's going to make progress no matter what. And, and so I do think the ERA is going to help all women as we move forward and hopefully push into a future of legal gender equality, how can we reconcile the positive and negative impacts of trailblazers like Alice Paul? 
I spoke with Jamia Wilson, publisher and director of the Feminist Press and on the ERA Advisory Council of the ERA Coalition about just that. I really think that what we need is to acknowledge the history, sit with it in full accountability, and move the conversation away from one about seeking redemption. What could we gain from what we've learned from the ills of the past to move forward for a better future? Because if I really think about even the ways in which I was talking about gender when I was in college, compared to what I'm hearing my interns and staff speak about gender now and the spectrum of gender and the way in which they talk about it, I'm thinking, oh, there are people who, if there's an archive of that many years after I'm dead, will probably find me problematic. And what will that mean? And for me, it would be less about redeeming myself as a full, perfect person and more of saying, okay, continue to do this work in the way that you know now that we've expanded this conversation and that humanity has expanded. I heard Harry Belafonte say something recently that really stuck with me that I think really applies here, and he's a feminist and an ally. And he said, I've had this long walk, and he talked about all these amazing people that he had engaged in at this point in his 90s, him saying, there's a lot I've done to pave the way, and if you want to continue on the road that I've helped pave, do so. But if you also think you can pave it in a better way or a better direction, please do that too. And that's what I feel about Alice Paul. That's what I feel about Susan B. Anthony with some of the views that they had about specific things that I'm diametrically opposed to and my whole humanity is in opposition to my being to say, but the idea of an ERA and the expanded ERA now that is more intersectional, those ideas shouldn't be just cast to the wayside because of one human being's frailty. And uh, I think talking about it more and paving a way forward is more important. Like Jamia said, it's important to move away from the narrative of seeking redemption and move forward in a way that's productive. In order to learn from the past, we have to acknowledge it. And we have to understand that women like Alice Paul made choices. She said and did incredible things. She wrote and introduced the Equal Rights Amendment to the world. But she also did things and made choices that harmed other women. This is the part of her legacy we must reject. Today, there's a diverse, dedicated, and intersectional movement pushing the ERA forward. And while we tell the truth about the past, we also need to make sure that we tell the full story about what is happening now and who is making it happen. In every state where there's currently an ERA ratification resolution pending, those bills are sponsored by women of color. Let's make sure that makes it into the history books this time. Next time on Ordinary Equality, we're talking about why all this matters, the real people it impacts, and what the ERA could mean for the future. Ordinary Equality is a Wonder Media Network production, edited and produced by Liz Smith, executive produced by Jenny Kaplan, with support from Edie Allard. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Wardell. Special thanks to my employer, Equality Now, an international human rights organization that works to protect and promote the rights of women and girls all around the world. To learn more about what you can do to support ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment, check out 
equalitynow.org backslash E-R-A. To follow along with our journey, find us on Twitter at ordequality, O-R-D equality. If you like our show, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Wonder Media Network is a women-led podcasting company dedicated to lifting up underrepresented voices based in New York City. Hi, everybody. I want to tell you about the Latter-day Lesbian podcast. It features a Mormon gay girl trying to figure out her life, along with her ex-evangelical partner, plus some interesting guests. They unpack religious trauma, as well as LGBTQ issues, and a lot more. These ladies interviewed me on a recent episode, and we had such a great time. So give Mary and Shelley a listen, won't you? You can find Latter-day Lesbian wherever you consume your podcasts.